Good morning. Please be seated. So much power from the front. <laughs> so I think that God did something in the arrangement of uh, Mike Keggy's uh, diary, because as it's turned out, uh, this reading, which was supposed to be preached next Sunday, actually ties up very nicely with uh, All Saints Day, which was celebrated on the 1st of November, and which we commemorate on the nearest Sunday. Uh, so, uh, hence the choice of hymns as well, which tie in with the reading and with All Saints Day. So, we're carrying on with the lessons on Thessalonians, and the passage is two Thessalonians that we're reading from. And when you're preparing for sermons, normally you read a couple of different uh, versions and because it helps you to prepare for it, but also um, it helps you to think which version to read. And when I read the message, I thought, oh my goodness, maybe I don't even have to preach a sermon. I can just read the message. And, uh, but yeah, you will have to listen to me. <laughs> now, friends, read these next words carefully. Slow down and don't go jumping to conclusions regarding the day when our master, Jesus Christ, will come back and we assemble to welcome him. Don't let anyone shake you up or get you excited over some breathless report or rumored letter from me that the day of the master's arrival has come and gone. Don't fall for any line like that. Before the day comes, a couple of things have to happen first. The apostasy. Second, the debut of the anarchist, a real dog of Satan. He'll defy and then take over every so-called god or altar. Having cleared away the opposition, he'll then set himself up in God's temple as God Almighty. Don't you remember me going over all this in detail when I was with you? Are your memories that short? You'll also remember that I told you the anarchist is being held back until just the right time. That doesn't mean that the spirit of anarchy is not now at work. It is, secretly and underground. But the time will come when the anarchist will no longer be held back, but will be let loose. But don't worry. The master Jesus will be right on his heels and blow him away. The master appears and poof, the anarchist is out of here. The anarchist's coming is all Satan's work. All his power and signs and miracles are fake. Evil sleight of hand that plays to the gallery of those who hate the truth that could save them. And since they're so obsessed with evil, God rubs their noses in it. He gives them what they want. Since they refuse to trust truth, they're banished to their chosen world of lies and illusions. Meanwhile, we've got our hands full continually thanking God for you, our good friends, so loved by God. God picked you out as his, his from the very start. Think of it. Included in God's original plan of salvation by the bond of faith in the living truth. This is the life of the Spirit. He invited you to through the message we delivered. In which you get in on the glory of our Master, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so friends, take a firm stand. Feet on the ground and head high. Keep a tight grip on what you were taught, whether in personal conversation or by our letter. 
May Jesus himself and God our Father, who reached out in love and surprised you with gifts of unending help and confidence, put a fresh heart in you, invigorate your work, and enliven your speech. Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm going to paint a bit of, a, of, the, of the picture, the context of where Paul was, the congregation, before stepping into the actual letter and going through uh, some of those verses. Firstly, um, Paul was probably still in Corinth uh, when he wrote 2 Thessalonians. And both letters, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, are addressed as from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. The letters are probably the earliest Christian writings um, that we've got on record. And this is rather significant. This is the earliest record that we've got of what uh, the faith was and how Paul communicated it. Certainly, if it wasn't 1 and 2 Thessalonians, it would have been one of Paul's lessons, letters. And we can date this to 49 to 51 AD. And we know that. You can read in Acts chapter 18 that Paul was hauled in front of Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia. And we know from an inscription in uh, Rome that Gallio was the proconsul from around 49 to 51 AD. So these are very accurately dated letters. With the congregation, something happened between the first letter and the second letter, which prompted the second letter in such a short space of time. It appears as though someone sent word, possibly in a forged letter, that Jesus had already returned. Paul is still in very good spirits about the small community at Thessalonians, but it appears as though some false teaching has crept in and he needs to set the record straight. In many of the new Testament documents. I just want to talk about the style now of this particular passage. Parts are written in a genre called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is a term used differently by various New Testament scholars, sometimes to refer to literature and sometimes a worldview in which um, some of the Jews were expecting the appearance of God's kingdom suddenly and completely. So what I'm explaining uh, is what happens in apocalyptic literature, because there are definite aspects of it in this chapter too. You can also find pockets in Matthew and Mark's gospel. I'll, in fact, I'll read a passage from Matthew just now. And then, of course, the most striking example of apocalyptic literature is the book of Revelation. Revelation is the Latin word for the Greek word apocalyptic. So it gives you an idea of what we're talking about. And, um, and what, what apocalyptic generally has to do is some sort of special revelation which is then interpreted by the uh, person to whom it's been revealed. But there are three aspects of apocalyptic genre which are worth mentioning. The first is that the words are like a code language which cannot be readily interpreted by an outside group. In this way, messages can be sent between groups without the content of the message being too readily interpreted by, for instance, the Roman authorities. It's important to remember that at this stage, the church is still in its infancy, and the groups that are sprouting up all over the place are being persecuted by both the Romans and Jews. The result is that, uh, so the result of this this um, not being able to be interpreted by outside groups is that 
modern priests and scholars also have difficulty interpreting the language because it's been lost over the ages what exactly was meant. So nobody can now say with certainty that this is what this passage means or that is what that passage means. I'll come back to this aspect in the later parts of the sermon, but it's worth noting that the way people interpret the Bible is affected by what kind of genre they think they're interpreting and what kind of document they think the Bible is. The second aspect is that apocalyptic literature seems to concertina time. It looks as though it is taking the past, the present, and the future, and it's pushing it together into one sort of um, uh, an understanding of it happening in one particular point in time. And it's like, how many of you know about something about photography? A little bit. Okay. So I don't know if you remember old lenses. You know, most of us have, have cell phones which just focus and do everything for us nowadays. But in the past, we used to have to focus and, and you, know, you could do a whole lot of things on these lenses. And you still get these cameras nowadays. It's, they're quite phenomenal. <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> when, what one can do with photography is I can take... I can, I can focus this lens in such a way that I just focus on those two staffs in the center of the pews. And everything else, everything from uh, Carolyn coming forward and uh, uh, from Pinky going backwards is out of focus. And you do that by making the aperture really small. If you make the aperture big, everything comes into focus. But what happens as a result of making the aperture small is that the light is very dim. And so you have to hold, it, hold the light exposure for longer in order for the picture to actually form on the film. And that's what apocalyptic is like. It's, taking, it's focusing things on a particular area, but you've got to be very careful and take time to interpret what these scriptures are saying. Hope that makes sense. The third thing about apocalyptic to note is that it is generally meant as encouragement to Christians, not to frighten them. They are like the operas of Verdi during the unification of Italy, or closer to home. Under apartheid, a lot of musicians' music was banned because it provided encouragement to those people who were oppressed. And it's like that literature. It's, it's, it's meant to encourage people who are being perse persecuted, not to bring more pressure to them. So, now we get to the, uh, the actual texts. We don't know the precise meaning of every phrase, but we can pick up enough to see the general thrust of the literature, and that's what I'm going to look into now. In the first section of the, the letter... That's the part that alludes to someone deceiving the community and the strongest indication that this is the reason why Paul wrote the second letter. From Acts, we get the impression that Paul couldn't have spent much more than three weeks uh, with this community at Thessalonica. It talks about spending three Sabbaths with them. And so there was enough time for Paul to convince them Jesus is the Messiah and that he would come again and he could argue this from scriptures. But there wasn't enough time to actually lay a very firm foundation about all of the different aspects of the faith. 
So that's why it's easy enough for somebody to actually come in and provide an alternative uh, uh, idea about when Jesus would return. Then in verses 3 and 4, and actually for quite a bit of the passage, you learn about this this man of lawlessness, uh, about this dog, this real dog of Satan, this anarchist. And this section draws echoes from the life of Caligula, uh, the Roman emperor from around the 39 to 42 AD. Caligula was the first Caesar who proclaimed himself God while he was still alive. Often the sons of emperors would say, oh no, my dead father was a god, and therefore I'm a son of God. And that, that language should ring bells for you. Um, that shows you exactly why the son of God, Jesus, was in competition with the son of God, Caesar. But Caligula called himself God while he was still alive. And in response to a rebellion from the Jews, he actually wanted to go and put a statue of himself up as God in the Jewish temple. So he died before he was, he was assassinated, before he was able to do that. Uh, but that just gives you an idea. This, this is the sort of thing. We can't say for sure that this is what the text refers to. But it's the sort of thing which, which sounds like what is being spoken about. But I also want to read to you from Matthew 24. Uh, so that you can actually hear this sort of, uh, this, this, it's like a paraphrase of Paul's letter. So when you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place, as was spoken by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the housetop must not go down to what is in the house. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For at that time there will be great suffering, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, Yah is the Messiah, or there he is. Do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce great signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So you see this theme repeated about how, God, how Jesus will appear. Everybody will know about it, and you don't have to worry about somebody uh, sending letters. Or, and don't be deceived by the signs that may happen in your presence. Even in the Gospels, Jesus says to somebody who says, but Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. He says, get away from me. I do not know you. People will be deceived. But this, this takes us further through that passage to what are the consequences of our actions? And where is this from? A lot of people will use these passages where, where he talks about 
um, all of this is from God and talk about predestination. But there are other ways of interpreting it as well. And essentially what we say is the more one positions oneself in the truth, the more one believes the truth. And the more that you position yourself in lies, I'm not trying to make it this side of the congregation versus this side, the more you believe lies, the more you sit yourself in falsities, the more it becomes that makes sense to you. And so we make decisions and we position ourselves in the truth or we position ourselves in lies. And we've got to make that decision ourselves. C.S. Lewis puts it really well when it comes to the eternal consequences of the decisions that we make. He says, there are those who bend the knee to God and say, thy will be done. And then there are those who refuse to do that and to whom God says in great sorrow, thy will be done. Paul also talks about the, these, this, this group of people, this community, as being called through the proclamation of the gospel. And we need to think about what does that mean for us? There's, a, there's a, quite a popular meme, uh, um, which is uh, supposedly by St. Francis, which says, preach the gospel by all means necessary, and uh, by all means possible, and if necessary, use words. And the spirit is, is good in that, but from time to time, we do need to use words. There's a proclamation involved, and it's not good enough just to live a good life. From time to time, we do actually have to learn to tell the story of Jesus. We've got to figure out, you know, how, how is Jesus good news, and then actually articulate it uh, in, the, in the situations that we find ourselves in. And this brings us to Paul re-emphasizing about what he taught both in letters and in word. And in the word, in the, 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 what he uses in the, the, new, the new revised standard version of the Bible talks about the tradition that you received. And, and we've got to find out which, which tradition is it that we find ourselves in. The word tradition has a, a negative connotation generally in the Protestant church. And <clears throat> people are starting to warm to the idea that tradition can be good, because actually what they're now realizing is, well, we all have traditions, but some of those traditions are good and some are bad. And we need to learn to articulate what are our traditions and what are the traditions we find ourselves in. And there's one very important part of that in the Anglican Church. We talk about tradition, reason, uh, and scripture in the Anglican tradition. And I just want to read something from a paper which I wrote uh, a couple of years back. As different, different hermeneutical models, hermeneutics is just a fancy word for interpretation methods, result in different interpretations of the church's hope. I will start by discussing a number of hermeneutical models and look specifically at the traditional approach of the Anglican Church, which uses tradition and reason to interpret scripture. This is an important section, as while we find many Anglicans speaking about scripture, tradition, and reason, those who emphasize these most tend to use tradition and reason the least when interpreting scripture. 
if they even think scripture is a source Anglicans should be working from. I aim to show, rather convincingly, that the traditional formula, scripture, tradition, and reason, is the well-articulated position of the Anglican Church, and that scripture holds the primary position in this triumvirate, not an equal position to the others. I'm, I'm not going to read the quotation from Richard Hooker, but he was one of the first people to proclaim, and essentially what he said was, this was during the, the Reformation, when the Anglican Church was first formed, and he said it's essentially this, scripture first, then we use reason when there isn't a clear picture from scripture, and when even from reason there isn't a clear picture, then we take the tradition of the church, because that's what we assume has come from the apostles. So there's a very clear hierarchy in the Anglican Church. And I say that because when you, when you disagree with somebody about what a particular passage means, the reason you're probably disagreeing is because you're actually using different interpretive methods. And there's a number of different methods that are available to us, but it's essentially these scriptures that we're interpreting. Uh, this comes back to specifically this, le this letter was written because people had thought something about Jesus had returned. And there are so many different teachings in the church and outside the church about what's actually going to happen. And just to think about it, uh, in Buddhism and Hinduism, we talk about reincarnation. That's not from scriptures. Uh, then there is the Greek philosophers who talk about going to a disembodied heaven, and that's the final picture. Within Christianity, we talk about resurrection. That is the message. In the Old Testament, you get different kinds of messages and you find the Sadducees and the Pharisees believe different things. But in the New Testament, it's very firmly resurrection. We die, we go to be with God um, we, after we died, and then when Jesus returned, we are resurrected into a new body, but we're not resurrected as somebody else or something else. We are resurrected as the people we are, just sinless. So I will know who Melchior is, and he will know who Philip is. We won't be strangers to each other. So what does that mean for us in terms of the context we find ourselves in? The Bible, the, the Bible is the church's governing document. What you believe about Scripture is going to is going to inform your life. And we need to familiarize ourselves with the text. We need to make this our story. We need to, as Paul says, we need to submerge ourselves in the traditional teachings of the church, which we find in scriptures. And that informs us as to how to respond to the situations we find ourselves in. As I was saying earlier on about proclamation of the gospel, we just need to learn to, hear, to say something about God, something about creation, something about humans' um, role within that creation and how it went wrong because humans decided to follow their own uh, plan rather than God's plan. And then how God sent his own son to get us back on track. And now we're waiting between Jesus starting to get us back on track 
and him coming to, to actually bring it all together again. And that's, that's the story that we find ourselves telling ourselves again and again so that we can live out this in faith um, of Jesus. We don't always get it right. Um, you'll see in the, the leaflet I've printed out the words to for all the saints. And this is, this is both to think about the teaching of the church, but also uh, to, to commemorate All Saints Day. You'll see there are 11 verses which uh, William Howe wrote. Most of the time you'll find in hymnals there's only eight verses because they leave some out. And then the order of the verses are changed around. So in the Lutheran church, I've printed from the back, you'll be happy to know that in our hymnals, the last three verses are in the right order. <laughs> but the reason why I point this out is because if you look at the... If you look at verse 6 on the back of the leaflet, you'll see, but lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day, and it ends with the golden evening, in verse 8, brightens in the west, soon, soon the faithful warriors come to rest. And in a sense, just changing the order of the verses makes it look like, okay, our eternal, our, our final destination is resting in a platonic heaven. Whereas the actual... Uh, uh, the actual sequence of the hymns goes, the golden evening brightens in the west. This is verse 9. Soon, soon, faithful warriors come to breast. Sweet is the calm of paradise, the blessed. Alleluia, alleluia. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The king of glory passes on his way. Alleluia, alleluia. And we'll sing these verses shortly. But think about that. Think about the teachings of the church that we find in 2 Thessalonians, the teachings of Paul. When Jesus returns, it won't be by letter that we find out. We'll know when he returns. And when he returns, we will rise and be with our Lord. Let's take a moment of quiet.